I'm Christian Chiller. Welcome to my podcast, an enthusiastic ramble through whatever has taken my interest the past week or so. Expect technology, games, history, travel, geekery, and as always, much more. Welcome to the first Digilis Weeks of 2024. I hope you all had a merry, I don't know, end of 2023 and good beginning of 2024, all several days of it. I am thinking of doing a kind of plans and looking forward to what I'm going to get up to in 2024, etc., etc. But I haven't quite got around to finishing my thoughts around that yet. <laughs> probably by March. That's probably when I'll be ready. Uh, and then it'll be too late. But anyway, sometimes it takes a little bit of time to get your thoughts together. So instead, I am going to have in this episode two interviews from way back in September 2023 from Open Source Summit, the two remaining interviews from that event, actually. And the first interview you're going to hear is with Lesek, who's an engineering manager at the Wikimedia Foundation. And we had an interesting conversation about how organizations like that, i.e. kind of older ones, but also very large and very active, how they do open source. And it's quite different from some of the, the ways that new organizations do it. And then I speak with Jessica, who at the time, and I think as far as I know, possibly still is, represents herself. And we are talking about diversity, inclusivity, and equity in organizations and in open source, et cetera, et cetera, to quite different interviews. <laughs> Sometimes you just end up with things that don't quite fit together, but they're both very interesting. Now, a quick disclaimer, the interview with Lesek, there's a lot of background noise. He's okay, but in a few places I re-record my questions just to make it a bit uh, a bit clearer so it'll sound a little strange but just so you can actually understand what I'm saying and not just hear people clanking things around in the background instead enjoy but first just a few words from sponsors so i'm currently leading since last year a team we call wikibase product platform what we do is we have multiple products that relate around linked open data around uh, project wikidata and wikibase software and all of these are based on the same technical base basically use the same underlying software so since a couple of years ago i i've push the management kind of, we'll see if that's a good change or not to have the, the team that would work distinctly on this platform to allow teams that focus on and user and facing product to focus on, on, on their specific products and their own value streams, so to speak. So I'm currently the engineering manager in this team that is focusing on the okay. internal platform. Maybe just explain that a little bit more, the, the platform that is... What exactly I didn't quite pick up on. Yeah, yeah. so it's not a platform a quite popular sense that is these days it's not it's, it's not a delivery platform per se. It's also not it's really internal development platform. It's more of a um, we see the internal software like the basic software on top of which the user facing functionality is built. This is this platform. So it's maybe ultimately that's our effort to reorganize our monolithical software that grew over 10 20 years into something that on one hand for our own reasons or, or needs where we are the main maintainer of the software to to have it organized in a way that where when we currently have five engineering teams and five product teams working on on, on the thing so that they don't have to work on the on, on the same piece of software all the time stopping on each other toes so we want to organize it in a way that every every team focuses on their own thing 
and if there's some stuff that is shared and, and yeah. you want it that way, then it will be delivered as a service yeah, okay. from this platform team. So, so a lot of the modern startup companies probably could like a platform. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. We realized that in the last couple of years that, that when you say you're building a platform, people mostly think about delivery platforms and those kind of things. And I think we are not, it's not that thing. But I think reorganizing this platform also makes sense from the open source, like broader open source sense, because that could also bring the software to the, to the state where it's easier for folks to contribute and build things using the software or tune it or extend it in a way without where you wouldn't need to change the whole thing or basically fork the, the, what do we have there? Because that's the current reality that thing is so monolithic and so intertwined that it's, it's really hard to make something uh, on top of it, which wouldn't be, be trivial. Yeah. Okay. Wikimedia and some of its software, especially things like Wikipedia, are very open platforms and they are very well known for being open. But how does the foundation do open source? And I don't want to go on a rant here, but I think this is also what I was, I was trying to, to highlight in my talk yesterday here at the conference that I think we Wikimedia... And it might be mixing two aspects here. There's Wikimedia Foundation, yes. which is the, the US-based nonprofit, which in terms of software development, they, their main responsibility is on one hand hosting all the, the, the Wikipedia Wikimedia project, like they, they run Wikipedia, they run Wikidata, Wiktionary, Wikimedia Commons, all of that. But they also they are the, the main maintainer of a software called MediaWiki, which is yes. this wiki software that was created for Wikipedia originally 20 years ago. And it is a open source project some folks might know. I think there is quite a number of hundreds of thousands installations of that thing and wikimedia germany which is my employer we focus on this linked open data aspect yeah. mostly and there we there we are maintaining of a software called wikibase which is basically turning this wiki software into into something where you can store a knowledge graph in it and have it curated actually we've noticed quite some interest in, since, since the start of wikidata so wikidata is a project yeah. we started as a meant as a source of I'm oversimplifying it. The Wikidata folks at my, at my organization will hate, hate it for, for now, but simplify it. Uh, the Wikidata was, was meant to, to store data so that Wikimedia projects like Wikipedia could, could create it from one central way. So whenever, I don't know, there is an article about Berlin, the place we live. Whenever there is new census, the new information, how many people live there officially, folks wouldn't need to go to 200 language versions of Wikipedia and update the number. It could be in one place in Wikidata, the article could just say, grab this information from here and put it in this box on the article. So that was one of the, the original reasons and for it. Somehow. And, and, and Wikidata, yeah, yeah, Wikidata also stores data in a multilingual way. So you, you describe the concept in an abstract way and then you give it how you, how you call it in any language. So you can also pick yeah. the right version uh, from a one central place. You don't have to manually translate it uh, all over again. That was the original idea of Wikidata, but when it started, there was some interest from other institutions or individuals or communities that also have some knowledge that they want to structure and share. So there, on one hand, has been interest, quite some interest in the glam sector, so galleries, libraries, museums, yep. especially libraries, they're, they're, in, in, they're quite interested in it, although they are still figuring out whether this is the thing that really suits them. And I think on one hand, this is the software bit, but also libraries are not all of them. And I have a lot of respect to libraries. I was a library staff myself. But uh, they're quite conservative institutions at times, or they, in the, in the sense they... Run by government. <laughs> on one hand, they, they are often, probably varies by geography, but they are often state-run indeed. But I think also that the way librarians or catalogers approach the modeling the data, basically describing stuff, I think this is all based on the punch card systems from the fifth. Yeah. So it's well established, and yeah. I think it is good, but also... 
I think there is this notion that there, there are people who know how to do stuff at the library. That's why they're catalogers. They've been catalogers for 20, 30 years, and it's great. But then you suddenly open it up and allow every random person in the world to just come and add stuff and describe things, not in a proper way in code. Yeah. So it's, there is this a bit of controversy there. Okay, so okay. on one hand, they have an intent to, to have a bit more exposure and a bit more involvement from, from, from the outside, but yeah. st still the rules are important they because... Like knowledge, but they don't like to open it to everybody. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't go that far because I think this is this, they, they just need to, to fig figure out how exactly transform themselves yeah. maybe to this 2020s. But there's also communities who are not that, that serious that... Wikimedia Germany, for instance, has been working with this community that, that describes the knowledge of, of their own community based in, in South America, in, in Quechua language, which I think is in North Anne's part of the continent. And they have, I, I don't know how many of them actually are there, but it's just a bunch of people, but they really want to have their own specific, the, the information about the language or the knowledge about the language and information about the culture to be visible on the internet. So it's just not there. And I don't know, in some written source. So I think the, the, there is some interest by very specific user groups, very nerdy probably at times, but I think there, there has been surprisingly quite some interest in this knowledge graphing. I think the idea we have is that, that we imagine this kind of ecosystem of knowledge graphs that you create your own knowledge graph or the, 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 the area that you have, you can connect it to, I don't know, via Wikidata, for instance, you connect it to... Uh, to, what I was to coming to, ironically, let's say uh, the graphing of, well, the graphing, the wiki style of connecting data is an old concept. It's been having a bit of a renaissance thanks to tools like Obsidian or Research. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. People are familiar with the concept again, even though it's generally your own personal one. People have got used to putting square brackets again and they know what that means and generating a graph. So yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think, yeah, my colleagues at Wikimedia Germany started a, a project or started a product called Wikibase Cloud, which is meant especially for those folks who, because historically, Wiki, when you wanted to do this knowledge graphing, the software has been open source or, or publicly yeah. available since the beginning. Your question that you asked 10 minutes ago, probably no, nobody remembers anymore what it was, but it was what kind of things Wikimedia does in open source. I think yeah. all the code we create essentially, like yeah. everything but passwords or credentials yeah, is exactly. public yeah. and it's it's released under open li uh, licenses. So in principle, all we do is, is open source. It's interesting though, because there's companies like GitLab, for example, who are very loud about that. And it's very obvious, although they make it big commercial products, but a lot of their communication and code is, is all there somewhere. And we can, we can media people think of it as open, but I don't know, people know where to go to find Yeah, I think this is one of the things yeah. we struggle. So I think things are there in the open, but I think that it's it's quite unstructured or maybe it's very unclear how to enter it. Or so, traditional way, maybe presenting open source. Then. Yeah, I think, at least just the claim that I, I arrived at when I was doing this bit of reflection, how are we doing it? In being actually the open source, like the part of open source community, whereas I have this kind of idea that open source is this thriving ecosystem where people enable each other constantly. You don't have to solve all the problem yourself because somebody probably solved it. So you just pick the solutions of someone, add your thing on top of it, and then you come up with a new product or a, or a new solution that someone else can also take and contribute back to it. I think we are quite a, we have everything we do is public. And it's free to use, but I think we are still in this kind of bubble of our own that there is very little contributions to the MediaWiki software or to Wikibase software. And I think the issues there are, on one hand, there is, it's challenging to contribute to the software because the software is maybe not very clear or 
yeah, it's this 20 year old monolith yeah. uh, and it, it's quite clumsy, but also how to contribute there. Uh, starting from a very high level, like what things do they even want in this thing? I have a need to, to extend this knowledge graphs um, software with something, but I could spend six months of implementing it myself, but will I even welcome it? Because we, we are not very clear about what is the, the direction for the software. So while we have all the, I don't know, or our spin boards are public and all of that on a very obscure platform, but you, you could find it, but understanding higher level, where this thing is going, how do I cut into it? How do I add things? What is wanted? What is not wanted? How, what would happen if I make this contribution? I think those things are very unclear. Do projects like your own ever have a problem with the fact that a lot of modern developers have got used to, say, the GitHub and, to a lesser extent, GitLab way of discovering open source projects? And with something like any of the Wikimedia Foundation projects, they have to know where to look. Is this a problem that you face fairly regularly? So, yeah, I think one thing that did we do to balance that out or overcome it is, all, so we host our code on our own infrastructure. But interestingly, we are in our Wikimedia as a whole is in the process of moving to a self-hosted GitLab instance. I think that will probably still take a moment for us, but we moved for the self-hosted Garrett and something combination to GitLab. But... I don't know. I'm a dinosaur, but I actually have worked with Garrett before I joined Wikimedia. Same. But I think it's not, as you said, for folks who just started, it's probably not common at all. And the UI of that thing is utterly confusing. And GitLab, GitHub has this thing that it's actually more useful. Like with many things that could be said about GitHub, it's very easy to use. It's easy to start with. And I think they've been doing quite, quite some good work to make it very easy mm -hmm. to kick off. But all the stuff we have or all the code that we have hosted in our own places, it's mirrored to GitHub in a read-only mode so that folks can actually find it. And then what what, what happens if you, if you actually try to contribute via GitHub way is, is you so you open pull requests, for instance, yeah, yeah. you immediately get it re closed by or, or, or rejected by a, by a bot, but it says go somewhere. And I think I was when I was looking at how we do this open source thing, my initial reaction was this thing is not that great or not that welcoming because you get a very generic yeah, message yeah. there. This is the, the some wiki page where we have described how you create an account in some weird platform. This is and go figure how to do it. Yeah. But then I looked at just a handful of pull requests that we our software got over in the last couple of years on on, on GitHub, and they all ended up in this right platform oh, okay, ultimately. Good. So it, it wasn't even, I was expecting that it might be things like, oh, somebody didn't feel welcome and just dropped the, the idea and maybe someone else then picked up and, and used their code to, to submit it again. But generally people were, in, in, sometimes it took a day, sometimes it took three days, but I, I noticed that those, those whole things were submitted again to the right platform. They ended up being accepted. So while it's, it's not the easiest way to contribute, I think it somehow still works. But you're right that GitHub is, is, is somehow this canonical place to find stuff. Yeah. Interestingly enough, it also might be geographically specific to our kind of Western part, because I was in the talk by a person yesterday here at the conference saying about what are the barriers. To, I don't know how about the band thing, but in China they use they, they have the local version that, that, that young folk generally uses. And they are aware of GitHub, but they, they mostly read GitHub because they, they don't feel comfortable contributing yeah. there because there are all the cultural aspects yeah. to it and all, all that yeah. stuff. But I occasionally think... encounter them in the West and when you come up with projects in the Chinese or the Japanese as well, sometimes we're probably in the same situation with a lot of people from there, like they pay for it, but I don't understand Right. <laughs> I mean, that's a whole separate yeah. discussion, but maybe we'll, let's come back to your, anything else in your, you covered in your talk around lessons you've learned right. from running open source projects and we've covered some probably indirectly already. Yeah, so I think... Uh, 
I, I think the, big, the biggest uh, thing I've, I've realized, and I'm actually still not sure if this is our own specific case or do all bigger open source projects struggle with that, mm. but we are quite closed in our own bubble thing. So uh, I don't think we will get that much of contributions that, that one would imagine in, in the sense when you think about it. So, well yeah, it's a software that, that, that uh, runs Wikipedia. So surely people would like to contribute to it. That's quite quite yeah. uh, catchy project to get involved in. But I think... Uh, Do you wonder if that's because you have, as, as to be honest, to be blunt, the, you know, the most well-known project of Wikimedia is Wikipedia. It's, it's huge. Um, and it has its own ways for people to contribute. People do contribute to you very regularly. Somewhere else. That is certainly true that, that people contribute to, to Wikimedia, for instance, creating content, that yeah. writing articles or doing all of that. But I think there's different kind of audiences as oh, well. Maybe I think Wikipedia did start, I, I imagine, as this more kind of hacker-like community yeah. where folks creating the code were the same ones who were writing articles. And I think that might be actually partly a cause of a problem that, that we don't are not that open for external folks. I think this is... And yeah, I think Wikimedia is great, but I think it is also quite close for the others. And I think there are often reasons for why Wikimedia, for instance, so Wikimedia, maybe to make it a bit more technical and boringly nerdy, but we, I didn't make it, didn't think about it as a massive reason why we maybe are not that involved in open source work ecosystem, but we use rather data technology at times. So the whole backend thing is PHP. And I think... New young folks these days they don't learn PHP. Does it? All right. In, 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 in any case, this is not the cool technology of, of the day, but I don't think that is really that big of a problem because there are still lots of folks who know PHP. What I was about to say, WordPress is also the same thing, and it runs, runs half of the internet, and I think they get some contributions, but. We don't use that many PHP libraries that exist for things like, I don't know, database abstractions, all of that. I think the, all stuff is custom and homebrew. And I think part of it is history because it started, especially for, for, for yeah. it was 20 years ago. So those, those frameworks or libraries didn't even exist. But I think oftentimes the reasons or I call it excuses sometimes, there are valid reasons why not to do, why not to use someone else's software. Right? Then you end up relying on it and what happens if they drop it and then you but you're running encyclopedia you just cannot stop providing wikipedia for two days so you migrate stuff so it, 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 it there is a risk in using dependency always but on the other hand i think so yeah in areas like the often the common reasons why we seem to be reluctant to using others software is, is security or in, in performance so wikimedia is a non-profit driven effort so the budget for instance for running site like wikipedia which is probably still in, among the top 10 websites in the world. I think we used to be top three, but I, may, I think we were taken over by all the social networks. But in any case, it is still quite popular. It gets quite quite some traffic there, but it does not. It does run on rather shoestring yeah. budget compared to the, like the, yeah, the, the big tech. So there's many tweaks on many levels to, to make this, the things actually work and handle the amount of traffic that it, yeah. that is getting, which is also ending up in a software as well. So we could say we cannot use the Symfony framework because the way it, I don't know, routes traffic, it's just generating double amount of CPU usage and we just cannot do it, which is, I think, partly a valid reason, but I think it's also we haven't really benchmarked that, that properly to be able to definitely say that in for use case X, we just cannot use something and then don't have to create our own solution for yeah, a soft problem. Or, is a luxury, a luxury of people with more yeah. 
and and there's also aspect of security. If you are Wikipedia contributors, contributor in, in in German, that's all fine. I think you're being even renowned in the community. People think you're you're doing the good thing, but there are parts in the world where where, where it's not that popular to say at least. In some places, it's illegal. That 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 could even get you threaten your life, depending what kind of topics you're covering, because some things are not basically considered to be existent in certain part of the world, so why would you even describe those? So th there is a lot of risk, uh, it's greatly appreciated by folks in those parts of the world who actually contribute to Wikipedia. But then the software, uh, I think we are quite concerned about the privacy in the software, that's why the whole hosting is done in-house because we don't want to expose traffic to someone else who would then potentially maybe expose some data to, to, to a government or to some agencies or would be targeted by some actions. Yeah, and then I think there is also the, the claim that is often made, but... Uh, how can we trust that this open source uh, library with its own dependencies and its own dependencies will not have a bug somewhere? So I think some folks believe that if we build things on our own, we are more. We know how it works on, on one hand, but then instead of having a thousand of contributors who would fix the bugs, you have those five lads who build it, and they're only people in this planet who know that how it works. I think there is. It, 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 it's interesting because now at events like this, especially like KubeCon things like that, we now have so many conversations around trying to solve the next problems we created ourselves, like software security supply chain issues and saving money on cloud infrastructure and data security and provenance yeah. and these things. And ironically, the companies that never really changed <laughs> never had to worry about it because they know all this themselves. Yeah. themselves. And there strangely is a little bit of a backwards, not backwards, backwards sounds bad, but there is a, uh, I think because there's budget cutting at a lot of tech companies now, there's actually a bit of a movement to going back to having things more in your control because at least you know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, but I do hope that, that movement actually makes it easier to find the, the, the sensible approach to it because I, I, I really think it believe that it's 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 valuable to, to not have to do everything on your own because then especially when you have limited resources. But these days, everyone notices that resources are are not unlimited. But if you end up solving the problems that someone else solved, that, that you have less capacity to do things that, that actually make your business or your initiative, like in our case, where we, we don't strive for, for revenue, but we still have some ambitious goals, what you want to see with this free knowledge initiatives and all of that. So if we focus on building database abstractions and caching optimization and all of that, we don't have necessarily capacity to build uh, software solutions that actually solve the end-user problems that we want to do. So the open source projects you do have, they are you know, using a lot of dependencies that people are not familiar with, a lot of custom domain. So how do you help people get onboarded understanding those unfamiliar topics and contributing? Yeah, so I think we don't do the greatest job at, 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 at this. And one of the things I, I have mentioned in the talk, but I think I, it was really going on a very, very surface of the topic in this talk because I, I stupidly submitted a lightning talk, I think, where I had five minutes. I still managed to talk nine about it, but it's still very superficial. But one of the initiatives that, especially from my team's perspective, where we are focused on this internal structure of the software, I think we... we 
could make contributions way easier by, by turning the software and basically making the architecture more simpler or at least not unnecessarily complex because currently it's a monolith where everything is, is entangled everywhere. So where you, even if you are lucky with our questionable or not questionable, I think the recommendation is good. There's just little of it and all of that. Documentation, you will figure out where you would start building the thing that you want. Yeah. You might end up building what you wanted, but then suddenly things fall apart, start falling apart in the complete other end of the product because everything is connected there. So I think we, I would like us to move to more modular architecture where every, like things have clear purpose and it's really easy to tell what they're responsible for, how they interact with the other bits. So you would really know where to start and what to avoid, what implications your changes might have and all of that. So that's one aspect that I think we currently are not the best at, but I hope we will gradually moving towards. Um, and one of the things that Wikimedia Germany specifically didn't really have much success in, but I think our colleagues in the US had a better, more one is, is, is reaching out to the, to the folks out there who might be interested uh, via those internship or st stipend programs like Google Summer of Code to just... Yeah, and I think those exist, but I think when approaching those, what I think we might have failed at is you shouldn't think about those as something that brings immediate benefits. As in, you, you're not going to win the, the expert contributor of, over summer with those. You will not, I don't know, find a, a senior developers that you could hire as your staff over a couple of months. But it's more of a kind of longer term investment. And I think oftentimes... I think mostly because we are a non-profit organization, so we really struggle with resourcing and prioritization. As in, we always have to pick something. Yeah. While we would like to do ten things, we can only do one. So it seems tempting. <laughs> Let's put this extra project for those two, three students, and they will build, build it on summer. But you have to onboard them, you have to explain them, you have to check with them constantly why they work. So you clearly would build those things quicker if you did it yourself. So it's not that you are getting free labor through that, but I think it's very tempting, for, especially for management, to perceive things that way. Yeah. And I think we, we, at least in engineering, the part of our organization, we puzzle those because we basically realized we don't have capacity to properly manage those folks along the way. So it's, it's not helping those people because they will, I don't know, it's for often, oftentimes they might be first exposed to open source and they will get an expo uh, the experience which is not great. The, I don't know, there is a mentor who is not around, they don't get clear tasks, they get a task they, they struggle with and fail to deliver, so they will not get that engaged and they might drop their interest in the open source things what they entirely, and I think this is not great. Even if the media doesn't get it from some, something from it, I think if people just get hooked up on this open sourcing, I think this is benefit and win overall. But if it's not that we don't get stuff because we cannot explain or basically lead them to delivering what we wanted, but we also, I think, burn the, the, the enthusiasm there. So I think yeah. we, we pause there until we, we find a way to meaningfully include those in, in, in how our organization work. And I think, yeah, I've, after some reorganization that we've been going through with like restructuring how we work on those different products that I was mentioning some minutes ago, I think we are in a position where we can Wait, think about... The, the internal model. Yeah, 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 I think we are basically doing that. I think we are in a position where we could include the, the unexperienced work a bit more and support that. So I hope the next year we will do a bit more on just this kind of mentorship or internship-like thing. Yeah. So that's about how we get people started. I think we are not very good at that. And the technical barriers of entry or like those kind of knowledge like barriers of entry is one thing. And the other thing is 
even if they have interest, like I, I mentioned this Wikibase, the folks interested in Wikibase in, in building their own knowledge graphs. There are quite some folks who are interested in, in building the custom stuff on top of the software because they are software professionals and they have interested customers. I was thinking about this with regard to something like Obsidian, which has a plugin architecture. If Wikimedia data is so commonly used as a source of truth, why do I keep copying and pasting it from one place to another? Why can't I just reference it and embed it directly in my own uh, content, my own knowledge management tools? Yeah, that, that's the whole thing about Wikidata, but I think accessing programmatically is not that easy uh, because we use quite quite some obscure ways of, of accessing it's not, it. It's not standard APIs, I remember it's... Um some other kind of code. I think there are essentially two ways where you can get data from. If you're lucky, you can get the data that you need by doing some web API call, which, again, another pitch for my team here, but there used to be, or there still is, the predominant way of doing this some kind of RPC API that you would use, but it does not necessarily is very standard. If you know that API, you will have to learn how to do it, but... My team has been building RESTful API for it, where I think it also nicely maps the structure of this object or this concept that you want to get data from. So that, that should be easier, but it's still in the making. And the other way of, of getting the data where especially you can benefit or alleviate this whole connection and, and graph concept, you can make a query in a graph query language Sparkle. But I think I heard about it in university like when I was studying, which is, you could imagine, it could have been 20 60 years ago, and there were probably 100 people in the world who knew it. I expect the population who are experts in this querying language has not changed ever since. Oh, yeah. So I think this is a very powerful tool, but it's quite obscure. And also it's quite some issues in running in, on, on scale as a running the interface this provides it. So I think there's quite some room for Wikimedia and also for other folks, if we allow them to meaningfully build things, to, to build something in between, where this very rudimentary RPC or RESTful API where you can get all the data about one thing. And there is this very, very powerful, but also very hard to use and very cost to run uh, Sparkle thing. So I think there's lots of room, like, yeah. like trends like Gra GraphQL come to mind a lot of yeah. these where, where you could maybe have some APIs that, that provide some interface for some kind of use cases, not, not all of these, but I think we have this thing, we have those very generic things that can solve any use case. But I think that there's also limits to, to, to those in the sense that... I just don't wonder, it wasn't necessarily a question I wanted to ask, but it seems we've gone down this path a little bit. How are you as a person or you as a foundation finding the fact that now a lot of new ways of interacting with knowledge, shall we say, the kind of whole AI world of tools, a lot of them use a lot of wiki, wiki probably more Wikipedia data, and then people interface with that in... in um, in a different way, and probably a way that you have no knowledge of a lot of the time because it's all pre-populated. And as as a, a goal of the foundation, it's not a bad thing because you're still spreading that knowledge. But I feel about this way that you've, you've been trying to create these ways, these flexible ways for people to interact with the data, but now possibly there's going to be this whole other way that we have next to no control over. <laughs> and, you know. Is it good or bad? So I personally think this is not a bad thing. And I think this is good to also be my employer's uh, yeah. statement that overall, I think this is not bad. What I personally think, and I think there's also alignment with, 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 with the organization there, 
it is important that people know where this data comes from automatically. And I think this, it's not a recent thing, right? Google has been using the, in, in their knowledge graph, they've been using Wikidata and Wikipedia yeah. for, for years. I think they've been using, and they, that, that's one thing. And they also, when, when you, I don't know, when you, when I Google search for a celebrity because I forgot how they look again, or <laughs> first thing, first kid is Wikipedia page, but there's also this thing on the side where, where they summarize data and it links the Wikipedia page. So I think this is quite, quite a good action there. I use the Google as an example because yeah. I think this is the, probably still the most popular search engine in, in, in this world. But it's probably not always that, that, that clear for those consumers how to make this connection. I think this is also fine. What Wikimedia is interested in as well is that when those, especially big tech organizations, they make use of this data and Google, Apple's, all of these, they of course do that. And I think this is fine that they also contribute back once they, they've done something with this data. It's just funding. <laughs> funding is, is one thing, but I think apart from funding, and I think it's not that we are, we, that Wikimedia, and I'm not the person to talk about details of that, but I think it's not that they're not interested, those organizations to, to help with funding and those things were happening via some kind of agreements and all of that but when the big tech organization gets this data they do stuff with it they process it they clean it because there there, there might also be things that are not necessarily correct no more or maybe there, there are things that were not connected properly so they, they enrich this data ultimately for their specific needs but what they've done in this data could be useful for, for other applications. So I think we've been trying and successfully, more or less successfully, and I think there's a lot of improvement and things to, to happen in the next years with that, to, to have those, what we call reusers of our data, to go back to the original place so that whoever also bases their work on Wikidata can also benefit from them. And of course, and there is a lot of interest in this big tech. Of course, there is a kind of lot of, or some reservations there as well, because there's stuff that makes sense to give back. There's stuff which is maybe critical for your business, so you don't necessarily want to, to, to give too much. But I think there's so much they've been doing with this data, especially thinking about the big companies, that there's stuff that they, they give back. And they, yeah. don't, they not necessarily might have meaningful mechanism on our side to do that. So this is also an area where we could improve that as well. Oh, fascinating talk. I feel like we could go on and on, but we should stop there. <laughs> sure thing. The scale, the, the scales of the things that Wikimedia has to do with fascinating. And you talk about Many companies will talk about having to migrate a monolith, but you know, most companies are not the top three, five, ten, whatever websites on the internet. So it's a it's a big jump. <laughs> so, yeah, what I, you're trying to migrate from is also older than a lot of people. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, I think we are operating in the challenge-rich environment. Uh, you said like you could work for a startup. <laughs> I think this was a quote from some person, some engineering colleague that I've heard. Uh, <laughs> I think it's James Forrester should get a claim for it. <laughs> I have no idea if he's the original author, but other, but yeah. All right, thank you very much for your time. Now joined by Jessica Tyner. I think it doesn't really matter where you are from or where you're working because it's not really what we're here to talk about. <laughs> you had a, a, a talk on the first day that was quite well received around diversity. There has been a track on that and the event. Yes. I would be interested to know, if this might be why people found your talk interesting, what you mean, or what you meant, or what you think diversity should mean. Yeah, so as I said in my talk, there's three ways to you to look at it. You have the actual diversity piece, where that's from like how the employer like helps their workforce be more diverse, like how they actually got, get this different talent. And then there's inclusivity, which is how the like workforce itself work. They look at their employer yeah. and if they feel included in the workplace or not. 
and then you have equity, which is not to be confused with just being equal. Yeah. Whereas equity is changing people's circumstances or accommodating. I like calling it accommodating. So you get the same or like you have the potential to get the same results as everyone else. Okay. So that's really the core message. And this is the this is generally what is referred to in the DEI. Yes. Um, I suppose DIE would be an unfortunate acronym. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my main point in, in my talk. I was just in the back of my mind. I was like, don't say die, don't say die, don't say die, don't. <laughs> I'm in Germany, so yeah, it's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, the main talking point I had was say, you don't want to join a group that wants you as just a member, referring to quota or being quotas or being a diversity hire. Of course, it's nice if they feel, fulfill these DEI strategies and all that. But at the end of the day, you want to be hired for your skills, not because you fall into marginalized groups. Yeah, we should maybe dig into each of those three yes. and, and look at the, I think, what you said. So it's not just a token or just not just a line item on a values list or whatever it may be. <laughs> and I think a lot of people have worked in places where it is basically just a tick box, not really a way of life. It's not really yes. So when it comes to, let's start with the D, so diversity. Mm. What does what do you think diversity should mean? There's some very obvious aspects to it, but there's less obvious ones as well. And how do you think companies can be more diverse without not focusing on just because and, and actually focusing on skills instead? How do they find those people? Yeah, the important thing for like initial step is figuring out, okay, why do you want uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion? Is it because everyone else else is doing it and you need to do it because of regulation? Um, and what is it? Because if it's just done out of obligation, you're not putting your values or your your all into it, and then it just it it's going to be reflected through the people you hire. It's very easy as at least all the like people in different minority groups I've talked to, it's very easy to see when a company is doing it just to fill legal requirements compared to when they actually want to. And the main difference is that it the words of bad and also good companies get around saying that if I ask my, I'm fully blind, so if I ask my other fully blind engineer friends, what do you think of X company? What do you think of Y company? They will very quickly say, oh, their inclusivity is trash or they did all this good stuff for me while I was working there. And, and that's why it's not really because the groups more or less know each other in certain areas. PR is, of course, important to get the word out there initially. But if you keep pushing this, look at us, we are so diverse and so on, that just there's that line where it starts to become fake, if, yep. that's, if that okay. makes sense. And I don't know if you've had any experience or exposure to, to places like this, but I remember having a conversation a couple of years ago in certain parts of Europe, especially Eastern Europe, bits of Southeastern Europe, where people uh, from UK, America, Germany, France would say, oh, you need diversity. And they would say, we're in a country where there isn't very much. It's a very monocultural country. Uh, do you have any ideas or recommendations around places like that where they would really like to have diversity in the workforce, but there's not a lot of it? Locally, <laughs> I I challenge that notion that there's a lot a lot of 
profit locally. Okay. Even in if we go in the tech sector, just women is considered a marginalized group. And I will make the assumption that there's at least women in the country. <laughs> Other than that, there's also all the, like as an example, yeah. there's all the disabilities. Yeah. Yeah. There's also disabilities you can't see being neuro, neuro, neurodivergent. That's a, d- a disability you can't see, but it's still very much there. Yeah. Of course, even though it's a homogenous country, maybe in race or in culture, there's still people with disabilities. There's people, there's neurodivergent and there's women. There's many different ways to do it. And also, it also just going outside of more marginalized groups is also just refers to having a diverse workforce can be something as simple as having diverse ages so not everyone is 30 but there's people in their 20s 30s 40s that then bounce off of each other yeah yeah i think i think you're right there is maybe the some places that are thinking less about these subjects so potentially have a less diverse thought of what diversity is. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I, mean, I am a white man, but I do often... I'm often the oldest person in the room these days. So, <laughs> so and I think especially in technology, there is, it's interesting, there is, a, there is an aspect that older minds can bring from experience, not reinventing the wheel and things like that. Of, there's often the tendency in technology to think that everything you're doing is new and people who've been doing it for 20 or 30 years can tell you it's not and we made these mistakes before we can learn from these mistakes and things like that as well yeah I've always seen that it seems to be the older people that do new things because I have learned so much from my older colleagues when I've been in the workforce yep okay that's good to hear and then let's go on to the Let's go on to the inclusivity first. <laughs> so you do or you do not, depending, I suppose, on the D, have a diverse workforce. What does inclusivity mean to you in done right? So that's, it, it's, it's simple to understand, but hard to get right, I want to say, because the simple uh, fact is if you have a diverse workforce, if you have someone that has that needs accommodations, if that's for disability reasons or other types of reasons, I come from a, a background with a lot of different types of disabilities. I know most of that about that community. So in that sense, being inclusive, I've always seen boiled down to just ask the person. And also they might not know exactly what they need, because maybe it's their first time that they, that an employer has come and asked, hey, what do you need to do your job amazingly? So it's all about having that open communication about accommodate, like about accommodations for the individual and also being flexible and trying and be open to experimenting. In my example, as an example, I worked for a big tech company where their facility people came over and asked okay what do you need because we have a desk we sit in a team and I just said I need a way to find my desk when I come in the morning and we I didn't know how we were going to do that they didn't know because I was the first blind employee in that office but we figured it out together through experimenting and being flexible and they were really lovely and it's stuff like that where if there's just an open dialogue and 
the employer takes the initiative to just ask and be open to listening and adapting, I think that will go very far in inclusivity. And I think as soon as that happens, you can actually focus on doing your job and instead of focusing on trying to accommodate for yourself. And also, like, when you can start doing your job, that's why you start want, really wanting to put in that extra 10% because yeah. your employer is so nice. So you really want to be there and show up and do the work. How, how far do you think companies should go in terms of inclusive? Um, if you try to be inclusive to absolutely everybody for absolutely every reason, it becomes probably near impossible and almost disharmonious maybe in some respects, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Do you think there's a certain point where they should say no? Or is it always the conversation? And if you have an inclusive conversation, you can say, maybe that's not so helpful to other people, et cetera, et cetera, and then reach a compromise. I think unless it directly goes in and inhibits someone else's mm -hmm. ability to do their job, I still think it's very important to figure out what works. I don't, again, we barely have the line where people, like where companies even meet the line of being inclusive. So I don't think we even anywhere near reaching the maximum. But if we go with that thought experiment, I my, my answer to that would still be, if it directly inhibits someone else to do their work, maybe you need to figure out a compromise. But until that, it's all about the small adjustments most of the inclusivity, most of the asks I've heard people ask for is minor things that will, in the grand scheme of things, wouldn't do much to the overarching office or, or workplace. But for the individual with this certain need would make a lifetime of a difference. Have you found in your experience or the experience of others that smaller or larger companies tend to be better or worse or it just doesn't really make a lot of differences? really the individuals who go to the effort in those companies? There is a two-way for it. One, the company needs to be, as I said in the beginning, willing to actually be, one, want to have you there and not just for legal obligations or for um, PR reasons. But if they really want you there, I do think that it's that they'll definitely do what they can to help. I have seen cases where people, like companies with actual dedicated facility staff, tend to have more time yeah, to experiment. But that doesn't mean that a smaller startup yeah. wouldn't also help a lot. Flexible in some ways. They are well, flexible, yeah. whereas the bigger companies are willing to experiment and throw money at your small inclusivity asks. Mm -hmm compared to a small startup. Not yeah. that is bad, it's just trying to be inclusive in yeah. different ways. Yeah, okay. Let's move on to the equity because I feel like this may be the hardest one to first define and then secondly to act upon. In some mm. respects with the first two, whether they're good or not, mm. a lot of countries have laws and regulations around them to a certain extent. With equity, it's a little bit more, I think people, know what it means, but it means different things to different people. <laughs> so, so what does it mean to you in this context? So the way I always remember it is I had a lovely friend that told me about an internship that she was doing 
she is from the United States. And in the United States, a lot of interns aren't paid. And what I remember from that was the equity in that is if you have equity, the internship would be paid. Not because money is nice, it is. But the reason why that is a sign of equity is if the internship is paid, it allows people from both fortunate and less fortunate backgrounds to do the internship. Whereas if the internship is not paid, you will, without even thinking about it, only get people that has a fortunate enough background where they can afford to not get paid while working for six yeah. months. So unfortunately, see it a lot in Germany, a lot of unpaid intern roles where you're going, you're really just trying to get free work. You're actually really wanting to help someone on there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it might be a yeah. great, and that's also, especially because that happens very early on in the career, yeah. that just sets people for, that has less fortunate backgrounds up for continuously falling behind mm. compared to if you have someone that just graduated with a master's degree, as an example, if they have free internships under their belt because they came from a fortunate background where they had the opportunity to not get paid for six months compared to someone that's just scraping by, they do not have that same opportunity. So you already, before you even enter the workforce as a postgraduate, you already have have separated people from a less fortunate background yeah. Yeah. just because they weren't able to afford not getting paid for six months. But this also include things like social events that somewhat exclude people with certain life setups or other concerns that make it very hard for them to be ever to be able to attend any of those things. Or yeah, I don't know, that start with that example. Is that also equity or is that it could be classed as some kind of equity because let's say you never go to and you're in the tech world and you have the opportunity to go to events like this, like the Open Source Summit, okay, but yeah. you never can because of your disability or something else. Yeah. You miss out on so many network opportunities. Yeah, and just that alone can cost you a future job yeah. opportunity. Yeah. And I also wonder, does it go to the level of a lot of companies at a certain point will often introduce things like values, um, uh, a way they will present themselves to staff and to the external world about how they let workers be involved in a company. And it's often not always completely that way. <laughs> is, is that equity or is that just bad management? Val- values are very, very stark presenting really you, you want companies to have good values because that means their stock will go up and stock, that's a, stock in that way like yeah and that in terms of stock as in stock price yeah because that that's really how values are useless until you actually take action on yeah it. that's why i like personally i'm so impressed with what the linux foundation yeah. has done to accommodate me it was way beyond what i what i expected yeah because like I'm fully blind, I wouldn't be able to find my way around this massive congressional center on yep. my own. Yeah. So I basically had people, two two lovely people that they hired in, like guiding me around from morning to evening, basically. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm actually I'm going to talk to them exactly about these like network yep. thing, like yep. these events we talked about a little yep. bit ago, where I said that that is a value that they have 
yeah. take taking action on. And I feel like they shouldn't write a playbook on yeah. how to include people yeah. with disabilities yeah. because they have really done a phenomenal job. Final question then. <laughs> I, I wonder, it feels a little bit like the diversity, inclusivity, and equity that they say is a little bit like a, a circular feeding thing. I can't think of the yes. right word. Whereas if you are good at one, it naturally improves another, and et cetera, et cetera. Is that, does, am I getting the right impression there? So, if you want to put it on an, up on a timeline, if you have a human timeline, mm. equity would come first. Yep. Because without equity, you already separate people yep. that has fortunate from less fortunate backgrounds. Then you have inclusivity because you want uh, every individual at your workforce to feel inclu included because that way they will start viewing the workplace as being inclusive. Yep. And by having people feel included regardless of circumstance or disability or race or gender, that will make you have a diverse workforce. Yeah. So in that sense, if we put it up on a timeline, it's not so much a loop, it's more a, a pipeline in a sense. Okay. That this equity needs to start early and then you move into inclusivity and that by, by being inclusive, you will have diversity. Yeah. And by, being, by, by having inclusion, you need equity to begin with. So instead of starting at the, the, the top, which is probably the temptation. The diversity is the goal. Yeah. Diversity of the workflow yeah. of the workforce yeah. is the goal. And to do that you need to first do have equity in your Strong. junior positions, your interns, and then when they're actually hired in, you need to work on being an inclusive work yeah. environment, whatever that might look like yeah. for the individual. And by doing that for the people that need it you end up having diversity. Yep. Okay. Final question. It's always just a question I ask everybody. <laughs> yeah. This is not really a project or a company. It's you. Like, what's, your, <laughs> what's your plans related or not to you for the next <laughs> six months to a year? So I just finished my software engineering internship at Uber. And after that, before that, I worked with GitHub at their GitHub Accelerator program. Okay. And then now I'm going back to continuing my undergrad in software engineering. Mm -hmm. And in November, I will be at GitHub Universe in San Francisco, where I may or may not be a speaker. But in yep. any case, I will definitely be around for everyone to come up to and meet and talk to. And then I know it's a little further out than... Uh, in six, six, six weeks or six months, but then in next year, oh. I'll be in, in KubeCon in oh, Paris. Paris, yes. That's in March. Super I have, Paris, but anyway. <laughs> I have heard a lot of good about KubeCon. Yeah. So I will definitely be there and then we'll see what else happens. I have one thing for sure. I'll definitely come around to all the conferences. Fantastic. <laughs> and those were my interviews with Lesek and Jessica from Open Source Summit back in Bilbao. Oh, I remember the warm weather in September 2023. Obviously, it's not too much from me. It's it's that time of year where you haven't really done very much yet. So I don't think I really have anything to tell you about that I didn't tell you about last episode. There was a blog version of the Run Me video that I released a couple of months ago that's over on Medium and my website, so you can find that. I think that's about it for now, to be honest with you. 
Uh, as we ease into the new year, there's going to be a lot more, but that's probably all there is for now. So I'll keep this episode mostly interview focused and say, as always, you can find more about me at christianchiller.com or Christian or Christian Chiller on almost all socials. Uh, you can find links on my website too. And thank you very much for joining me and take care, everybody. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at christchinchilla.com where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter and find all of my writing, games, work and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind the scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.